on this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we're honored to be joined by four-time Oscar-nominated actress Jane Alexander. Miss Alexander's multiple nominations come from her stellar work on the films The Great White Hope, All the President's Men, Kramer vs. Kramer, and Testament. Other projects that grace her resume include The New Centurions, Brubaker, Glory, The Cider House Rules, and the recent Amazon series Modern Love. She's also won a Tony, two Emmys, and served as the director of the National Endowment for the Arts. This interview was conducted for our new series, Movie Geek Yearbook, which premieres its first episode on June 1st. Visit moviegeekyearbook.com for more details. Your parents were both in the medical profession, right? Yes, my dad was a surgeon and my mom was a nurse, scrub nurse to a brain surgeon. Yeah. Was there never the desire to follow in that in those footsteps? I think they would have liked me to have gone into medicine or or science, but my dad had been um, part of a a group called the University Players. Dad went to Harvard um, after he was an undergrad. It was like 1929, 1930. This group included Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, um, Joshua Logan, mm. and and it was a summer stock group of college age kids and maybe a little bit older and uh that was on cape cod for about three summers dad did that so he fell in love with the theater and so when i at a very young age said i was interested in being an actress he just supported it strongly oh that's wonderful but when throughout your career you've played you've played a couple of of doctors and, and, and figures in the medical profession and I'm wondering if, if for any of those roles, if you called upon your parents at all. Well, I don't remember playing um, a, really a heavy leading role as a doctor. Maybe mm-hmm. I did. You know, the truth is, Jamie, I've done so many things that I kind of forget the ones I've done. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I do remember playing psychiatrists mm-hmm. and therapists. I don't ever remember doing surgery, though. So not, no, sur- I- not surgery, no. I, I th- I'm thinking about, um, I think, tell me, tell me that you love, uh, you played yes. a psychiatrist yes. and Cider House Rules. Yes, a nurse in Cider House Rules, exactly. That was, she was a lovely nurse. I loved that nurse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, our series opens up uh, in the year 1970. We're, we're going to go back in time and, and forward in time. But we're opening on the year 1970, and that was a big year for you in terms of starting your film career. And so obviously I want to ask you about The Great White Hope. Um, And this is a part that you lived with for quite some time because you originated it on the stage. Yes, I did. Yeah. So first, I believe in Washington, D.C., and then on Broadway, and then the film version. I'm curious, when you live with a role for that period of time... Uh, if you could talk to me a little bit about the process of, of discovery, do you find that you're constantly finding new things about it as the, as the months and go on? Um, you know, James Earl Jones and I did it in Washington, D.C. together and much of the same company. It was a huge company, Jamie. You know, there were 63 actors, mm. 40 of whom were black. 
and they were playing over 200 roles. So it was a, it was really a remarkable feat that it ever came off. But James Earl and I were in it from the production in Washington, D.C., which then moved to Broadway, and we played that for a year, and then we moved right on to the film. Um, and the film was good, a long one, like four months, mostly in Europe. Mm. Um, and uh, the truth was we had played the roles so much during that year on Broadway. And Howard Sackler, who wrote the play, who uh, and he got a lot of accolades for that play, all, all the prizes. What was different for, and I'm just going to talk about myself, not James Earl, but what was different for me was that I had never been in a big, I think I'd done maybe some television movies prior to that, but I had not been a big, significant feature film. And this was a film that had a lot of firsts at being um, one of the last big Technicolor films of 20th Century Fox with some of the great, the great cinematographer Bernard Guffey, who at that age time must have been in his 70s at least, if not 80s. And, um, uh, oh, God, what is her name? Irene, Irene, she was a great costume designer, very famous. It was her last big... Anyway, it was that kind of a film. And what was difficult for me was just adjusting to uh, the difference between being on a small stage and a big big arena where you, I had to do you know, walking in big open areas and things like that. We didn't do a lot of studio work. We did a couple of... The, the interior scenes, like my one with Hal Holbrook in the DA's office, was interior at Fox Studios. Mm. But I, because I had not really participated in um, a big feature film before, as you point out, it really was my first, I, um, I didn't really know how things went. It wasn't the same as the theater. And I remember saying to Marty Ritt one day, he came to my on-set trailer before I did that Hal Holbrook district attorney scene, which, by the way, I had done hundreds and hundreds of times. (laughs) And he came to my trailer in the morning and he said, all set. And I I remember saying to him, I said, Marty, I just don't think I'm up for this scene today. I, I just don't feel anything. And he said, well, don't worry, we'll give it a go. And Marty really was a great guy and, a, and, and an actor's director, really listened to actors. coming. He came out of the studio system, uh, I mean, the uh, actor studio system in New York. And, um, and I said, and he came back a little while later, I said, I, I, I can't do it. He said, really? And I said, yeah. And he shut down production for the whole day. Wow. Exactly. It was only many years later that I realized that how much money they had lost on that one little wine of mine. <laughs> I never, ever held up a film company again in my life. Because... But, that, but, but Martin Ritt, um, I, I've talked a lot about his work on our show. Uh-huh. What an extraordinary director to, to work alongside your first time out in feature films. Oh, absolutely. I felt very protected. Very protected. Mm. And he was, uh, however, you know, he was having some problems only because 
uh, Ed Sharon, who later became my husband, um, had directed the Broadway show so stunningly that it was hard to uh, change the dynamic of the scenes in the movie. And so Marty relied on a lot of the same rhythms and the same kind of setups, even though it was uh, more expansive. Um, but I, to answer your question, I'm sorry, I'm going on an awful long. No, I love it. <laughs> but it's, it's, thank you. But it's a very, it's a very interesting question. And the truth was, I don't think we did come up with much that was new. Uh, I'm not going to speak for James Earl, but you know, we were we were so imprinted with what we had done on stage, and the lines were still the same lines. Mm. Uh, and also, we, we 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 had we had also both met with enormous success in what we had done before. So there, it's interesting I, though, because from, from an acting perspective, I remember years ago reading this an interview with Pacino and, and he, he did something like American Buffalo for a period of years. Yes. And he, he said, you know, halfway through the run, it occurred to him, why am I moving around so much in this scene? I, 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 I can be more effective just standing still. And that came, you know, a year into the run. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that, I, that, that know, fascinates I, me, that discovery, that nonstop discovery that you can have as an actor in a role. Well, of course, I did have more discovery um, in the movie because, as I say, moving around. Was the, for example, when I, le- when I leave the gym at the end and, and really mm. I, I go and I kill myself. And the way I'm walking, um, that's all new because you never saw that in the play. Uh, all of those. Yeah. So there were a lot of moments that, yeah. So I, I, I guess the nonverbal stuff was a lot of that was very new to me. Were you? Did it take some adjusting to feel comfortable with the camera to treat the camera as your friend? It, well, it was because back in those days they they had they had these extraordinarily strong Klieg lights, especially since we were out shooting outside quite a bit and. Um, you know, it, to compensate for a strong sun, Bernie Guffey and, and the gaffer would put up extremely strong lights. My my eyes are very sensitive to light, so I had a really hard time with that. And I, I, I could only close them in close-ups or even in master shots, just close them tightly. And then when they said action, I'd open them and pray that they wouldn't start tearing right away. Mm. So that was a that was a hard hard thing to for me to deal with nowadays it's so easy because you don't have you don't have any any big hard lights like that anymore yeah i'm curious about the the reaction to the the play the performances of the play in the film and engaging those reactions what did it tell you about the state of 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 race relations or the perspective on interracial relationships at that time well the play, we were, 1968 was when we opened the play on Broadway. And, and this was the height of the black power movement. Stokely Carmichael's black power, um, Black is Beautiful, uh, was a signature uh, slogan of the time. And indeed, they, black was beautiful. And you saw all these, my colleagues in the cast, my black female colleagues, were um, gorgeous, just gorgeous. They had these big afros, not that they wore them on stage. They had to subdue them <laughs> for, for the, the time of the 
of the play. But it was an amazing experience. We were right in the center. And I got a lot of hate mail from white bigots. I I couldn't read it because some of it was very, you know, feeling. It was mainly, I was mainly the, the target. Even the change over from a mainly predominantly white audience in the beginning of the run to over 50% black audience or more later was significant because they looked at the play differently. Um, the black audiences saw me as a real impediment to James Earl and they laughed when I died. Um, whereas the white audiences just saw it as a tragic love affair. And meanwhile, that, that final scene that James Earl has over your body. Yes. So highly intensely emotional and to and to have to play that opposite that kind of audience reaction must have been difficult he was so emotionally bound up in our love affair in um as as an actor in the character you know uh because he's a, he's a deeply emotional man james earl and so when the audience laughed it was very very hard for him sometimes and he would just stop and he'd get up and he'd, he'd address the audience right from the stage. Really? Yeah. This had happened a few times, but it was, that's how deeply it affected him. And he'd say, he'd say, I, I don't, he would swear a little bit at them and because they weren't getting the deeper, my, to his mind, I guess, they weren't getting the deeper message of, of uh, the love relationship or, and yeah. the tragedy of uh, the, the tragedy that we couldn't sustain it. I mean, um, the, the couple, the, uh, Jack Jefferson and Eleanor Bachman, you know? Yeah. You know, the other thing that I, I love about Martin Ritt, uh, back to the director of the film, is he devoted his career to making socially relevant movies. Yes. And this was a period of time in American cinema where... You saw a lot of those kinds of movies, movies that engaged in the culture and what was happening. Um, yes. And I'm curious if if your choices in your own career have been guided by those kinds of principles as well. That's interesting. I certainly was asked to be in part to be a part of uh, a lot of projects, if you will, that that were socially re- relevant um, and. I, I made early on, I made my career more or less as a dramatic actress, although I had really wanted to be a comedian more. <laughs> but um, so a lot of that kind of fit in. Yeah. Um, and I was drawn to the roles. You're right. First of all, very often they're really fine roles because they're, they're a hero's journey kind of role. And who doesn't want to play those great roles, you know? Yeah. But Marty, it's inter- you know, Marty had been, um, it, he was affected by the Army McCarthy hearings and everything like that early on. And not, I don't know whether he was, I don't think he was ever charged with being a member of Communist Party or anything like that. But he was very affected by all of that. And uh, he um, he wanted to do those kinds of, of films and God bless them. They were wonderful. Do you remember one called The Molly Maguires? From 1970. That was also a second film that he had out that year in 1970. Yes, ma'am. That's right. It was about mining. I loved that film. 
It's a great movie. And yeah. it feels it feels like a much larger canvas than he normally worked on. Uh, and yet at the same time, it maintained that level of intimacy and, and relevance. Yes, yes. He really was a wonderful director. And he was a lot of fun, too, because he was a great dancer. Hmm. I don't know if you knew that, but um, here he was, this kind of a little bit of a chubby guy, uh, but he was so light on his feet, he would suddenly turn into... Uh, do a twirler. <laughs> so he was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know. Oh, I'm wondering if if there was a time in your career when your when your first starting your arising presence in in cinema, if there was a kind of a clash between people telling you what you should do as a, as a as an actress on the rise uh, compared to what you wanted to do. Huh. Um, no, I know that uh, some people, including my mother, they didn't like me to be in very controversial films, like that race-related one, The Great White Hope. Uh, I, I don't know. My mother was a kind of poor South Boston girl, you know, and by way of Nova Scotia, and she she didn't know much about theater or film or anything. She was always telling me, even in the early days, when are you going to get a job? (laughs) I'd say, say, Ma, I'm I'm getting paid for this. But um, I remember her calling me up after she saw the movie, after it had been released in Boston. And I said, so how did you like it? And she said, oh, Jane, you stank. (laughs) And I'm like, Mom, what is that? But, I, you know, in retrospect, although it hurt at the time, in retrospect, I see that it, for her, it was more than she could understand or take because it was so. And there were many, many people. Uh, um, I mean, we've we've come so far in race relations now that black-white relationships don't mean anything. But James Earl and I were the first ones to be in a bed on stage. We were just kissing, but, you know. Yeah. And, and that kind of thing. And it was it was shocking for a lot of people. So... Yes, there were there were a number of projects that that I was was in that people really wished I hadn't been in for for personal reasons, theirs and mine, or um, because they just couldn't they couldn't accept the politics of it. Or, I don't know if you ever heard of a playwright named John Arden. Uh, I don't think so. No, he's way way before your time. But uh, he wrote an incredible play about war in um, the 60s called Sergeant Musgrave's Dance. And he's a Brit. He's a Brit. And in it, there's a scene where I was playing the lead woman, and it's really about World War One. And I'm underneath a blanket making love with a guy. And on stage, now, we don't ever get naked, but you see the, the movement of the bodies under the blanket. This was very shocking then that time too and people took a lot of offense and critics wrote you know that kind of stuff so Mm -hmm. yeah we were really in a different time so the backlash if you will was significant in that way and yet it was a time when when works were being produced that challenged the status quo and stereotypes and prejudices. I mean, that's that same year, 1970, we saw uh, Boys in the Band, which which yeah. really was a yeah. great leap forward for, for gay cinema as well. It um, sure was. 
yeah. Oh, no, there was, uh, there was a heck of a lot going on in the 70s, yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, Jenna Rollins and I, did the, uh, there was boys there in the band on stage and then the movie, and then Jenna and I did, oh, God, what was it called? A Question of Love. Hmm. First female lesbian film on television. Mm. Uh, and uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I remember? I I I have to. I, I'm laughing because I did uh, three films. No, I did one stage play, which I played a very hardcore lesbian in the early '70s, called "Losing Time" by a great Brit writer named John Hopkins, with Shirley Knight and myself. And then I did uh, the one with Jenna, and then I did another one too. And I remember one. <laughs> Ed and I had four sons between us. And I remember at one time I got this this offer. It must have been 1975. And, and it was wonderful, compelling. I can't remember what it was. And I heard one of the boys say, Mom, not another lesbo. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, come on, boys. Say, nope, three is enough. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I wanted to ask about the just briefly. Uh, I spoke with Stacy Keach last week. Oh, uh, Stacy, yeah, we did uh, New Centurions. Yeah. Do you have uh, vivid memories of of that uh, shoot? Well, I don't have vivid ones because again, it was an early one with me. But I I did love. Um, uh, Robert Town wrote it. Come on, mm. great writer. Um. Joseph Wambach had written the book. Stacy was wonderful, and George C. Scott, I I had so adored. I, w- I was so happy I got to play a scene with George C. Scott. Oh my gosh, yeah, George C. Scott, the, and the scene that you share in the hospital. Uh, with yeah, him. oh, that's it's beautiful. Good. Yeah, you know, I don't know how to ask this question uh, sensitively. I, I, I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, if you think about the portrayal. Of 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 women in in film, uh, especially from a domestic standpoint, a, a lot of films just cast wife, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but in, throughout your career, you've invested those those roles with such depth and nuance. Uh, and and has that been a challenge, or is that just the caliber of material you've been given? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, I think a little bit of both. Yeah. I think it's always, for example, if you take this lovely role of Margaret in Kramer versus Kramer, and mm. which I have a hell of a lot of screen time, but I don't have anything that is really punchy because it's all about Meryl and Dustin's characters. And I was the best friend of Dustin, if you remember. Oh. And yeah, and then I sort of turned, or I turned later, um, in some ways. But um, that was a hard, hard role to do because there was there was so little that I that was it wasn't a story about me, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's really what you're talking about. I think are these supporting roles that uh, are really to support the protagonist of the story. And they're harder in many ways to do 
unless you have real character twists to them. But then you don't want to do real character twists that are too much that will take away from the story. Now, a lot of the times these were things that I was asked to do, and I loved doing them. I mean, I worked with Benton, Robert Benton, several times, and I, I just adored him, and I, I had a great time working with Merrill and, and Dustin. So I would never not do these kinds of things, but... And yet there's that scene in the park bench, <clears throat> excuse me, in Kramer, mm. where you're talking about the, the feeling, uh, the, the pain of essentially being abandoned. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah. That I think in that moment, you, you are all of us that have ever felt that, that way. And it, it, I mean, you, you touched upon such a great truth in that scene. Mm, thank you. Well, I do love that scene, and Dustin's lovely in it, too. He touches me briefly. Yes. And it's a very, very tender scene. And the most, you know, what? sometimes wonderful things happen. I was dealing with that little baby, and I, I, I don't have a problem dealing with dogs, and even once I had to carry a goose on stage, you know. Um, but um, <laughs> you want them to behave. <laughs> this, little girl, this little girl, she was under two years old. And she just fell asleep in my arms mm. and just slept through the whole many takes we did. It was really wonderful. Mm. So that added to the scene anyway. I didn't have to worry about the baby. Yeah. And then there's the work that you did opposite uh, Dustin and uh, All the President's Men, which is, <clears throat> you know, that's a time vault movie for me. That's uh, every year I have to watch All the President's Men. And the scene... The, the central scene that you have with him, it almost feels like surgery. Uh, yeah. it, it's so it's so precise and capturing every nuance and capitalizing on that. This back and forth, it's so beautiful. Was that was that rehearsed uh, 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 quite a bit or no? No, um, that's not how uh, Alan Pakula worked really. And y- you just brought up my very favorite scene of all that I've ever done mm. in a film. Uh, it just works like dynamite, and I, I really owe it all to Alan Pakula because I, I, was, I was doing a, a show at the Kennedy Center at the time with um, my, um, a wonderful older actor who has since left this world. But, uh, and um, it was a Noel Coward play, but it's gone out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was doing that. I was doing that uh, at night and everything. And I was—I didn't have a, a big role, as you know, in *All the President's Men*, but it was a significant turning point role. And so I, I came on. It was a hot summer day onto the set, and Alan saw me in this little—I call it a schmata summer dress, blue dress. And he said, "Oh, Jane, great, you're ready." I said, "No, no, Alan, I just arrived. I'm, this is just my..." dressed and I'm going to make up and hair now. He said, no, you look great. Just come. Just come right in. <laughs> so there I was in my dress, in my own hair, my no, no makeup to speak of. And, um, and he sat me in the corner of this tiny room and, oh God, that great cinematographer, can't remember his name. Is it Gordon Willis? Yeah, uh, yes, Gordon Willis. Had this huge, uh, huge camera. That was taking up half the room. <laughs> and, he, and, and Dustin was literally just a few feet away from me. And, and Pakula put this lamp right next to me. And that was the light. It was 
you know, he just made it so easy to, to, to be very tense. We were, we were just in a state of tension in that hot room, this huge camera and all the people behind the camera trying to <laughs> do their jobs. And us, <laughs> and us just, me, pushed into this corner and Dustin leaning forward. It was great. I just think it was the most beautifully directed scene. And then he just said, okay, you know, it, we must have shot it, what, I don't know, 12 times, uh, all the takes. And that was it. But he, he set it up so it all worked. I think you could help me with the uh, uh, disbursement of money in terms of the number of people that were involved. How many? A group of them, about five. I don't know their names. Would Mr. Uh, Sloan know? Would, would he have any? I, I don't want to say anymore, okay? I won't be much longer. I wonder if you could just help me a little bit about the the, the money. We we hear all kinds of figures. There's so much of it. How how much is so much? In one two day period, six million dollars came in. Six. Six million cash. Mm -hmm. We didn't know where to put it all. I thought it was all legal. I mean, I, I guess I did until after the break-in when I remembered Gordon got so much of it. This is Mr. Liddy. It's also rotten. It's getting worse. And the only one I care about is Hugh Sloan. His wife was going to leave him if he didn't stand up and do what was right. So he quit. I was wondering if... Um... Hugh Sloan was being set up now as a fall guy for John Mitchell. What do you think? If you guys could get John Mitchell, that would be beautiful. I, th I, I wanted nothing more than to work with Alan Pakula again. And, you know, the, the thing that he was working on... Um, when he died on the highway going to the end of Long Island to work on a script was the, 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 the late life of Eleanor Roosevelt, and I was to play that. Wow. Yeah. He, he had asked me if I would play it. I'd already played it in that ABC miniseries, and he said, I, I can't see anybody else. Would you do this? And I said, sure. Oh, what a loss. Yeah, yeah. Pakula. Not, it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been the very late life, but you know the one. Well, you had played her from what sixteen to sixty. Yeah, about yeah, 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 yeah sixty, sixty-three, something like that. Yeah. Mm. I mean that was that was a, I call it the early prosthesis years because I had so many prostheses to play or the older Eleanor, and um, if you look at it now, it looks ooh, a horror show. <laughs> Because they're so good today, and they're so done relatively. Yeah. yeah. When you're doing that, is is it is it difficult to um, to to play the makeup and not have the, 
or does the makeup ultimately play you? I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I mean, if it's so heavy on your face. Yeah, it wasn't that it was heavy. It was just, it didn't have, the, the glues are different today. And mm. and the way and the way they make the silicone, if it is even silicone anymore, I don't know. But and then there's a lot of digital stuff that's done today, of course. Back then, it was really the early days of trying to figure out. So, I it helped me in some ways. Certainly, the teeth helped me with Eleanor. There was mm. a little a little inset of teeth that they put for, because she had quite a buck tooth. Uh, those kinds of things helped, but is is there normally? I mean, you mentioned the teeth when you're when you're building a character. Is there usually a a a, a, a key? Is is there an idea or notion or an, uh, some tr- physical trait that unlocks it for you? Yes, yes, certainly that happened with me. Um, we had a couple of years before. ABC gave the green light to the series where Ed Herman and I, who actually coincidentally live not far from each other in Putnam County, New York, and Hyde Park wasn't far away, where Ed and I really could just keep on doing our research. And I was having a hard time because I like to work from the inside out. You know, I need to know what, what's going on on the inside. Is, is this a highly nervous person and how does that develop or is it this or that? I couldn't understand how a woman of her size, five foot eleven, hundred and eighty pounds, could uh, 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 was speaking with such a high voice. He was talking like that, you know. Mm. And I, I, I said, "What the hell is going on?" And then I, I finally just stopped my diaphragm from moving, and it came out naturally that way. So I, I think she. Had probably she, I know she'd grown up in a corseted time, and that coupled with um, the, the abandonment of her as a child because the parents died young and uh, nobody really loved her a lot later. I think that uh, she just didn't breathe very much from the diaphragm. Mm. So she gets better as she gets older. You know, she by the time she's in her sixties, she's really using some breath control, but. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about Testament uh, Mm, because I I feel that this is a film that people are still discovering, uh, you know, 36, however long years it's been later. And uh, I know I discovered it a few years ago. I somehow I somehow missed it. And I I thought to myself, where have I been with this movie? I mean, why, why, why? This is just an astounding accomplishment. And yet, it's, uh, it's very tough stuff. It was a day like any other. Televisions glowed, radios blared. Breakfasts were being served. Children were playing. Everything was as it should be. When suddenly... I don't want to go too far back, but it, it had come out of, it, for me, uh, my involvement with nuclear disarmament began with a nightmare in which three of my four boys and I are hiking along and 
we we're coming back home after a long hike on a hot day and flyers are coming from the sky from planes saying don't drink the water don't eat shellfish it's polluted and then thousands of people are marching north because there's been a, some nuclear accident in New York and the end of my nightmare and this was a recurring nightmare by the way over a period of a couple of years in the 70s uh, the, we, the boys and I are exhausted we lie down on a, near a pond to have a rest and three of the boys go into the water and pick up clams and start to eat them and that's the end of my nightmare mm. so then uh, we're sitting around one evening and one of the boys is reading Ms. Magazine <laughs> and there's a short story called The Last Testament and he said mom have you read this this is like your nightmare and so uh, and then the next day Lynn Littman calls me up and she says, I'd love you to do this movie. And I said, oh, my God, you won't believe this. And then I said, of course I'll do it. So in many respects, I thought that I had already lived it mm. because of my nightmare. So when I came to shoot it, I felt very confident in the emotional life that I was feeling. But as an actress, I could really get into it without being overwhelmed personally because I'd already lived it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And it's amazing how sometimes I find this happens in art a lot when I'm speaking to various directors and, and, uh, and actors and such. The universe just <clears throat> aligns in a way that yes. nothing was meant to occur. This was meant to yep. be. Isn't that something? I know. And I find that happens more and more. Mm. It, in my life, it seems to have happened a lot. So this beautiful piece was dropped into my life. And I agree with you. It is a stunning piece because, I, I mean, my eyes are welling up now when I think that it all reduces itself to that. It reduces itself to batteries. It reduces itself to clean water. Mm. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It's all going to be about in your own backyard what's happening. And I just love the way the community interacts and how, um, you know, the, the young boy takes on the mantle of his father. It's beautiful. And how Lynn Littman, being a woman director, always used sheets. She, she has sheets. I wrap the bodies in sheets and... And I'm making beds all the time. You know, it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's, um, I do love how it's about the community and how it's about the, the very simplest needs and activities that become mammoth, become, you know, life and death. And how the crisis that is occurring is, is really, it's happening out there. It's the threat that's out there that's coming in here, but, you know, it, it, it's not this grand, you don't see, you don't see the big bomb blast up close. You know, it's not one of these apocalyptic movies in that sense. By keeping it intimate, I think it's so much more affecting. I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, the, the challenges become just such basic day-to-day -day challenges. Mm. And, you know, that little boy, that lovely boy who's the Down syndrome boy, he was really Down syndrome. He was so affecting because I get into the car with them thinking I'm going to kill all of us, you know, with carbon monoxide. And 
before the take that you see in the film, that little boy saw me put my head down on the wheel and start to sob in the, in the take. And he put his arm and touched the back of me and said, it's all right. It will be all right. Oh, oh my God. I thought I would die. I don't think Lynn used that take, but it was, so the whole film was infused with these kinds of magical moments. Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful movie. Um, my last question for you, <laughs> I've kept you long enough, but I, I'm so appreciative uh, to you. Um, oh. You are still performing. I think you're in the new, the Modern Love, the new Amazon series that just... Yes, yes, it just uh, debuted on uh, Friday. It's, it's really a fine series. I particularly like the first episode and the seventh and even mine, the last one, uh, uh, which uh, other people seem to like too. But there's, yeah, go on. It's, well, well, it's it's fascinating to me that the, the the longevity of your career and that you've you've branched out into other areas, whether you're 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 the chairperson of the NEA. You're 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 writing books about conservation, and I know you have a great number of interests. But I'm curious if your reasons for acting and the kind of fulfillment you get from it has changed over the years. <laughs> well, I'm laughing because <laughs> I I was doing um, a TV. Another one, not the modern love one, with with an actor who shall remain nameless. And I said, hmm. uh, somebody on the crew just said to me, because this was a pretty well known actor, uh, why are you doing this? And <laughs> and I said, I'll tell you why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for money. How about you? He said, do we do anything else at our age? <laughs> so so the truth is, uh, a lot of it is um, economics. Uh, but the tru- the other part of the truth is that if I love the script, which I did love that modern love, um, it's a very short episode. It's only a half an hour and my part in it because they recap all the other scenes, the other episodes at the very end is only less than 15, 20 minutes. But it's beautifully written. And mm. John Carney and Tom Hall, the Irishman there, they were terrific. And... Yeah, I did that because, and let's talk for a second, Jamie, about what we were talking about earlier, how things come into your lap, okay? So this is, this is sort of interesting, I think. Two years ago, almost at this time, I fractured my ankle badly, uh, both the tibia and fibula, and it required uh, surgery in December of 2017, and... A year later, I went back to my surgeon for a final checkup, and he looked at everything, and he, and he had already put in 13 pieces of what he calls rebar. <laughs> mm. and, uh, and he said, Jane, your ankle's beautiful. You can do whatever you want. And I said, ski? He said, yep. He said, skydive, whatever you want. Three days later, I get an offer for this modern love where I have to be a runner. <laughs> I am a runner. And I love the script. And I called up the director and I said, I think I should tell you something. I haven't been doing a damn thing for a year. And he said, don't worry. We'll get a stunt double. You'll be fine. To make a long story short, they never needed the stunt double. I managed two weeks later 
to do all my old running in the film. Oh. And I th- I said, what the hell is going on in the universe that this would happen at my age? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.